From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Woo! I feel yeah. like, I mean, just a whirlwind, man. Just a whirlwind. What do you feel like, Adam? Just that I've been, like, beaten down. <laughs> Three nights in Italy is not enough nights. No, in it's, Italy. well, not when yeah. you try to pack in all the drinking in those nights. All of it, yeah. It's, like, a lot just, <laughs> wow, man, wow, you know. Okay, so I need the highlights, Adam. What, what were the highlights for you? And then, Joanna, I want to hear from you. Yeah, so for those who are not familiar, we were in uh, Italy this last uh, three days for the Wine to Wine conference in Verona, in Fair Verona. <laughs> so the conference was good. Thanks for asking. In terms of the highlights, so I always like Archivio, Bar Archivio in like, you know, sort of like the center of the old city is really cool. And uh, they actually have a vermouth that is now like all the rage in New York City, which is funny. It's um, called Vol- Volume Primo. Yeah, and it's like all these cocktail bars now have it, which is kind of nuts. Um, and I think a lot of the cocktail bars in New York don't even like have any idea that it's connected to like a cocktail bar in Italy, which is also really funny to me. Mm-hmm. So that was a highlight. I mean, look, we had a lot of really good wine at uh, some at two dinners that were pretty special. Some really cool Barolos. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had you know a Pecorino from Medio Pepe. Um, we had a, so I think the, probably the coolest wine we had, Zach, was we were looking at this list. We went to this re- like restaurant the last night, and mm-hmm. I don't have my notes in front of me, so the restaurant's name escapes me. But Il Desco, Il Desco. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Joanna. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this bottle of Biondi Santi nineteen ninety four Cab Sangiovese. Oh. And both okay. myself and Dave Foss, who was at dinner with us and owns the wine bar Lalu here in Brooklyn, was like, we need to try this. <laughs> like, this is very weird. Like, And also, it was like one of those spot wines where because it was so weird, right, and wasn't made for very long, it was at a very fair price. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we called the Psalm over and he was like, oh, yeah, like they only – he's like, I think they only made this wine for a short time. He's like, I know the last time they made this wine was in 1996. And it was so cool. Yeah, it was really good. And just really delicious, like really delicious. Just, yeah, such a, such a really cool experience. And obviously, you know, Bionis Santi is most famous as being, you know, sort of the, one of the founding, you know, wineries of, of Brunello, right? Like kind of put it on yeah. the map. So this was cool to have kind of, I guess, what we would say could have been their Super Tuscan. Kind of. Yeah, sure. Uh, kind of. <laughs> yeah, like, right? Weird. But yeah, just such a super cool wine. Um, and that was definitely the highlight for me besides, you know, all the other delicious wines. But that one was just like one that I'm not going to forget. Yeah. What about you, Joanna? Yeah. I, I don't know. The I was going to say the Emilio Pepe was also really amazing. And I've never had a wine like that before. Mm-hmm. Um some of the cocktails at Archivio were really delicious. The fig sour and the coconut Negroni were two that stand out to me. We also mm-hmm. checked out their new spot called Amaro um, from the same guys behind Archivio. We checked out the Soda Jerk, right, Adam? That's okay. what it's called? Yeah. Another cocktail bar that people really rave about. Very, very different vibe there. Um, very different. <laughs> more of a cl- like more of a club vibe. Like I, yeah, I think this bar stays open vibe. until like 4 a.m., yeah. 
It doesn't open until 10 p.m. It doesn't open until 10 p.m., yeah. Oh, okay. But even just going, this was my first time at Wine to Wine. So that was a really cool experience for me getting to, you know, see all the different sessions, um, meet people there. So that was a, it was a really cool conference. It seems like it was a good, good sized vine pair contingent, was it not? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. we held it down. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And Adam, wait, did you get to make a martini on an airplane? Did yes, Instagram did. lie to me? <laughs> no, yes, Mid-air? I did. Mid-air. But the, come on. How did you not even, how did you not lead with that? So that was pretty cool. It, that sounds a little braggy. I don't know. Oh, um, come on, dude. Spare so, me. So, or don't spare so, me, I guess, actually. So, so, Josh, so Josh and I flew back together and we had used points um, to like get our tickets initially. And Josh is really good at like the whole points game. And so he'd like uh-huh. been doing research about like what happens if the day of um, there are still first class seats on Emirates available. Okay. And basically they can quote you, they usually quote you an amount of points. It's, that's relatively low actually. Um, okay. And if you're able to, if you have the points, you can upgrade. And so okay. we, um, we got to the airport and basically like Emirates wants all those seats filled because it's sure. like Josh who does a lot more research than me about airlines, right? It's marketing for them. So they just want people yeah. in the seats. Um, and so we got to the airport and they were like, yeah, we have these seats available um, and we happen to have the points. And so we upgraded and there is a bar and you actually can access the bar if you're flying business class too. Okay. And so you like, you go back to the bar and there's a bartender and they're making cocktails, but then the way that Josh and I wound up behind the bar making martinis was the bartender, right? It's it's Emirates, right? So it is a air, uh, an airline from a Muslim country, and most uh-huh. Muslims don't drink alcohol. Sure. So the bartender, who is also from the UAE, only knows how to make the cocktails that are on the menu. Oh, and we asked for martinis, and he didn't know how to make a martini. He was like, okay. "I'm really sorry, I'm embarrassed. I don't know how to make a martini. Can you teach me?" Oh, and so we went back behind the bar and taught him how to make a martini, and it was like really fun. And then he was like, "Thank you so much for for teaching me how to make this drink." Like he wrote it down. Aww. It was it was it was pretty awesome. And then yeah, and then we made martinis and hung out at the bar. And like you can stand there like you're at a bar. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my crazy. dad tells me has told me a few times about he he went for work to Kenya a number of years ago for he got to fly I guess it was maybe business class or first class but there was you know it was a seven forty seven and there was a yeah there was a bar and he's like yeah you know we could just go like hang out at the bar for a couple hours and me who has spent my life flying uh you know mostly economy crammed into a seat um was like it it always has struck me as like I, I don't know that like the lie down seats would be nice the ability to take a shower would be nice but like. Honestly, give me the ability to sit at a bar and drink a cocktail at thirty five, you know, thousand feet, and I don't know. Like, I'd be like, yeah, you know, this is a this is as good as it's going to get for me in this life. Yeah, the height of luxury. Yeah, that's the that's the highlight because yes, they do have all those other things, but the highlight truly is the bar. It's just like, yeah, holy, like, and you start thinking like, man, we should have more of these. (laughs) Like, I wish there were other airlines that had bars. Yeah, because it's just yeah, it's very it's very fun. It's very very fun. Um, so yeah, what about you, Zach? What have you been drinking while we've been in Italy? Well, I haven't gotten anywhere very far away, but uh, I have actually been to a couple of events recently, which is nice. Somehow it's it's worked out on my calendar, and uh, there have been some things in Seattle or nearby that I've gone to. So I went to a fun wine dinner um, the previous week at Chateau Saint Michel, celebrating the 50th anniversary of one of their 
signature, their kind of their first real vineyard they planted called Cold Creek Vineyard. And that was fun. Tried some uh, bottles from the vineyard, some uh, older Riesling that was kind of cool. Nice. And then did a dinner actually just uh, the last night as we're recording this, um, put on by Schilling Cider, a uh, local cidery here, pretty good size cidery in the Washington state. Uh, and that was really fun because, um, you know, I had a chance to talk to the owner and uh, a couple of people who work um, under him on, you know, kind of both on the production side and the sales and marketing side. Interesting conversation about where they see the direction of cider. They've seen a real sales spike in the last uh, year and a half, two years, which is kind of cool. Um, and, you know, Joanna and I talked cider uh, a while back while you were gone, Adam, because I think not you have no interest in it, which is cool. Uh <laughs> And Thanks, so we, exactly. Thanks for sparing me. Well, I think your cider feelings are well known. They're, they're, the archives are there. People can go back and listen. And it was just interesting to get the perspective of a company that is doing a lot of different things in the cider space. You know, they're making mm-hmm. some that are kind of large-ish production meant to be pretty accessible to people and then some more small production or just mm-hmm. kind of uh, esoteric stuff. Uh, yeah, so that was, those were both pretty cool. They also made a pomo, which is uh, basically like apple brandy blended with fresh apple juice, which is super tasty and interesting and not something you see a lot of in the States. You see it in like the Cavados region in France is basically where you see it traditionally because they do everything with apples there because that's what they can grow. So it was nice and a fun dinner. And uh, it was just you know nice opportunity for me to uh, get out and talk to some people in person, not just uh, through the computer. So very cool. You know, I have a Pomo from a place upstate and I don't know what to do with it. Like I've had it for a while now. Interesting. Uh, drink it. Th- is it just recommend. like you drink it straight? Um, I mean, I had they served it, yeah, just chill, a little chilled, but not like ice cold. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think you could probably use it in a lot of ways. You could probably use it as a cocktail ingredient if you don't know what else to do. Like, it's interesting stuff because it's ba- it's usually barrel aged for a f- number of years, but like it's got some you know some sweetness to it because because it has unfermented juice in it. Yeah, I don't know. I would think of it as like a you know it's like I don't know the one that I had. I think is like sixteen percent alcohol, so it's you know, kind of like strong wine, vermouth kind of territory for mm. an ingredient. I don't know. Mm. Maybe you can make a martini with it. An yeah. apple teeny, if you will. Oh, yeah. Oh, the new apple teeny. Oh, let's yeah. try that. Interesting. Let me know. Report back. Interesting. So, Zach, you want to you wanna introduce our topic? I do, yeah. So it's it's very fitting that you both have returned from Italy, uh, from Europe abroad, because I think this topic has been sort of kicking around the industry for a while because – at the same time as you know, we talked la- this last Monday about what we think may or may not be happening as regards a recession. It, it must be said that at the same time as all of these concerns are going on, the dollar is as strong as it's ever been, essentially relative to the euro, relative to the British pound, etc. I mean, I think it's currently one to one with the euro, which has you know certainly never been the case when I've been in Europe. Yeah, and I think the question on my mind, and maybe on all of our minds, is sort of well, okay, what does this mean for, I mean, it means something for people who are traveling from the US to Europe or wherever. That's cool. It's nice to have a, you know, a a friendly exchange rate. But I don't think we're really interested in talking about that because that's pretty straightforward in my eyes. What I'm interested in is like, who does this benefit here in the US and who does it maybe hurt? And I have a couple of thoughts on that, but I want to start with each of you. Do you guys have some sort of uh, categories, industries, maybe individual, uh, you know, companies who might be kind of looking at this either with uh, real excitement or potentially a little bit of trepidation. Well, we're talking about like importing and exporting, right? I think that's kind of the the con, yeah, the idea, right? Because that's where you're going to see it at the industry wide level, not so much the individual level. Yeah, I mean, 
so economically, right? Like when this happens, if you look at just, uh, you know, how the economy works, it actually is never a great thing for, it's a great thing for us, right? It's never been cheaper to go over and exchange our dollars into euros and have our money go further. The problem is it's not such a great thing for like these businesses who are trying to import into the US, right? Because now the gains they saw by having their their dollars, you know, selling in dollars and converting into the euros and making more money is now at an even cost. They could either even be losing money. So it becomes, you know, not great for them. Also, you, you tend to see American companies do Okay, right. So if the majority of your business is in the in the US, then when the dollar mm-hmm. is at parity, uh, you know, it's it's good for the US. But it's it's overall going to be difficult, I think, because you know, we're able to go over and buy more, right? But it mm-hmm. actually winds up that our, we're buying with our dollars, right? And then our dollars are converting into uh less euros, basically. Right. So it it's a situation where I think you're going to see the pr- prices rise, right? That's that's what's going to wind up happening is people are going to try to oh. sell their wine. When they import into the U.S. Uh, with their yeah. European okay, gotcha. wines, mm-hmm. they're going to raise prices. Um, and, and you sort of see importers already kind of doing this, right? Is they're raising prices. So, you know, it's the only benefit that you have when the dollar is like this is doing what we did, which is actually like traveling over and buying ourselves, right? Interesting. So, so being a consumer – in the market is a really good thing. So like going to London and not London actually, but the pound is actually pretty getting pretty low as well now, but like going to Rome and buying fashion made in Italy, you can benefit from as a consumer because Mm -hmm. you're buying at the source. But then once that fashion comes over here and it's, you know, the prices have to get have to be um, raised in a way so that that company still makes money And so the prices sometimes come over and are actually higher because of all the other costs they have to eat. It's really, it's, it's like a hard thing understanding economics, but that's my general (laughs) of doing the, doing the research, my general understanding of how it works um, and why actually like the dollar being at parity with the Euro is not a great thing for most people, including us, which is weird. So does that mean then that like um, American wines and spirits will be a better value for people to be buying here? In the United States. Well, yeah, because they're still pricing, except for inflation, right? They're still pricing right. sort of at around, at they do the majority of their business in dollars. And mm-hmm. so therefore, like the value of that dollar to them hasn't really changed, changed besides its inflationary levels. Whereas like if you do the majority of your business in euros, but now you have to, so now you have to sell, right, in, you know, and your euro is worth less, then that's not a, that's not great for you. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's certainly the case. I can imagine that at the higher end level, that where you know whether you're talking about you know Bordeaux or Premier or Grand Cru Burgundy or things like that, especially where there's also a lot of demand, there's probably more room to raise prices so that you know even if the dollar is strong relative to the euro these are you know whether or, or other items like you mentioned like you know high end fashion stuff like that where there's a lot of demand you probably can raise prices and you know even if it's just returning you the same uh value in euros that you were expecting a couple of years ago i do think that you'll see more affordable low end product because i think there's less flex in that marketplace like mm-hmm. if you're if you're looking at you know 
like I'd be curious to see in twenty early twenty twenty three what the import market for like you know rose looks like because there's a lot of it. It's a somewhat seasonal product, especially for like the less expensive stuff. And obviously, there's always a negotiation. There's always a back and forth. And of course, something to keep in mind here when we're talking about the movement of product from Europe to the United States is, you know, I think some of the supply chain issues have lessened, but they're not gone. And there are a lot of challenges with shipping and costs associated with that. Mm -hmm. And so much of that stuff gets rolled in along with inflation that the final price on a restaurant list or a shelf is may may not be affected that much by the relative strength or weakness of the dollar. I do wonder though, you know, Joanna, you mentioned domestic product here mm-hmm. uh, being not necessarily a better value, but a more stable value or something like that. Or just, you know, despite what people like me, I guess, might have thought where it's like, oh, the dollar is strong. So imported wine will be cheaper, which appears to not be the case, sadly. Um, I do wonder if it does create even further like challenges for producers in the U.S. who are looking to export, particularly mm-hmm. to Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot we've talked a lot about bourbon, right? And we've talked a lot about, you know, just uh, on the Friday episode about uh, Campari's purchase of Wilderness Trail and how, you know, presumably a lot of that is a, is a play to be in the, you know, American market even more firmly with bourbon. But, you know, I think they're a multinational. They have to be looking at, to some extent, the global growth potential for stuff like that. And there is possibly some, you know, that's just a, a, a difficult, you know, there is, there's undeniably going to be more obstacles when you're talking about a product that is being made in the United States with a relatively strong currency and you're looking to import it into Europe with a comparable to how it's been in the past, a weaker currency. So I would, that would be a place where I'd be very curious to hear from, you know, again, from either of you or, or from other people listening who might be more, uh, have more expertise in this field than I do. Certainly. Yeah. If that, those shifts do really make a difference because it may be a, it may be harder to convince the European trade, whether it's, on-premise off, you know, obviously mm-hmm. Europe has very different liquor laws, but but taking on a more expensive product that also, like a, an expensive product from the United States that now is carrying perhaps an additional cost because of the relative strength of the dollar. I don't know. Well, we actually have a really good article about this from Evan Rail from, I think, a couple of months back yeah. about bourbon, American whiskey specifically in Europe and how there have been a number of challenges that have kind of prevented it from taking off in the same way that we see it here. Um, and I think that this can probably only be an additional challenge to its success yeah. abroad. Yeah, because to clarify sort of what I was trying to explain, and I'm like, I'm realizing that it's confusing. So basically what this means is like, if you do the majority of your business in dollars, the dollar being the dollar being stronger means that we are able to buy the wines of Europe, the spheres of Europe for cheaper and bring them over here. But if you have to do any of your business in in dollars, right? And you're European, meaning you have to convert your euros to dollars. You now get less dollars when you convert. Mm-hmm. So let's say you buy your glass from somewhere else that that normally takes dollars, or you like to import American wine. Well, that's going to make it much more difficult for you to sell American wine or for American wineries to sell in Europe. So, like, it's basically it's this idea that like if you if you're an American business that gets buys goods and services from Europe, you're going to get things cheaper right now whether you're a tourist or whether you're an importer. So importers- Oh, I thought you were actually, saying that the importers will, they'll jack up the price for importers to make- So 
back. So right. So logistically, you would think the wine would get cheaper. The problem is if the wineries in Europe get any of their goods from outside of Europe, then they're going to ultimately raise their prices anyways. Right. So like it's this, uh-huh. it's, so it's this idea that like it's it's not always good because it's it's upsetting the in, the total sort of flow of goods and services. So mm-hmm. theoretically, yes, we should be able to go over and now it's at parity. And so therefore it should be cheaper for us because it used to take, let's say, $2 to every one euro to buy a wine or to buy a piece of fashion. But now if like that winery gets their glass or their corks or any or anything from anywhere that they have to buy with dollars, mm-hmm. then it's more expensive for them. So they will ultimately raise their price mm-hmm. and then it will still come over here at a little bit more than maybe it had in the past. But look, it also it also could mean that some of these importers and distributors having lots of buying power say, screw it. I used to take a thousand cases. I don't know from these few producers, I'm going to take 3000 because I can get more for my money. Yeah. Um, and then who knows if they're going to pass the savings on. And what's also making this very confusing is that inflation is just occurring across the board. Right. So like we as American consumers aren't actually seeing the benefit of having a strong dollar right now that we should see. So yeah. because there's overall inflation, we're not seeing like a, a cheaper bottle of, of European red wine. And technically, if there wasn't inflation, we should. Yeah. Right. But inflation is why the euro okay. has been weakened. Did that make sense? Yes. Uh, vaguely. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it. It's confusing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, like you said, there's a lot of moving parts here. So so there's not necessarily – it's not as simple as just saying, well, the dollar is stronger than – or strong relative to the euro. So therefore, the cost of anything we buy from Europe or that's imported from Europe will be less. It's just there are, like you said, too many – there are too many facets to this to make it that simple. But I am curious – because of this, since you guys were just in Italy, did you notice the difference? Like, is it something that you were aware of that, you know, I don't know how much, you know, maybe, maybe everything just went on that uh, Vinepair uh, corporate card anyhow. And so, you know, it all turned into uh, Emirates upgrades, but <laughs> was it, was it we a look noticeable at the prices. difference? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for me, uh, you know, it, for having gone to Europe this summer and now, um, you know, also for work, I noticed it in terms of being like, okay, cool. I don't have to like, multiply this right in the same way right like that's true one to one is very easy math (laughs) this is this is the price and so yes it did make things feel cheaper because then you know for example that wine that does get marked up here for whatever reason in you know in italy hasn't been marked up to the same extent because it didn't take a lot for that wine to get from that winery to you know this town a few you know maybe 100 200 miles away and so therefore, like their markup's not crazy. Then they also don't do as much of a markup as we do at restaurants. So yeah, it sort of felt like you were getting a deal. Whereas in years past, I've been like, okay, well, yeah, the wine here is 55 euros or something, but actually I'm, I'm paying 1.6 or right. 1.7. Yeah. So this actually is around what I would wind up paying for it in the US. So yeah, yeah I, in that regard, it is very beneficial. Yeah. And all most of the cocktails were also eight euro. Yes. So that's an $8 cocktail. Which was amazing. But I don't think like – so for example, Emilio Pepe, right? Mm -hmm. In the US, very popular wine, right? Very popular in Seattle as well, right, Zach? Oh, yeah. Like, right? And gets marked up because of who – you know, what it is. I still don't think that even though it felt to me that Emilio Pepe was more affordable in in terms of what we were paying for it, you know, at dinner – 
I think that like the bottle of Pecorino was like, I want to say like 85 euros or something. Um, I, I was looking that, that US, all up and I think it's like 130 or more. Yeah. I think still in the US, it's going to get marked up even higher, right? And they're, and they're not going to pass on the savings, even though the dollar is stronger and allows them to potentially buy more. The importer is not going to pass those savings on. They're going to take the price. Is what you know. It's what it's called when you sort of like allow for the inflation to continue to allow you to have more money. So mm-hmm. they're going to take price here, and they're going to continue to 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 reap the benefit. So I guess ultimately, I don't think the consumer is going to see much of a benefit unless you actually travel to Europe yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right that also you know as we we're talking about before, certainly on recognizable products like like famous wines and things like that, you're not going to see a sudden price drop like prices don't generally go down on those kind of products in any case you know they might stay level for longer uh if the if the cost to the importer and to the distributor is lower but yeah people people use those and this isn't meant as a criticism it's just a reality you know those those are those are benchmark items and they're important to the sort of overall health of those companies and so they're not going to lower the price of them even if they're perhaps getting a slight deal on them um, you know, Exceller, as it turns out. Right. I think the the last thing I was going to ask the two of you, because I think it's even more pertinent maybe for the two of you in New York, is are you seeing just – it doesn't even have to be drinks related. Just generally, is is this state of affairs leading to more people you know or, you know, yourselves, like, looking to go to Europe more? Um, you know, I would love to, but there are children and stuff that make that a little more complicated for me. But, but I'm wondering if, like, th- this state of affairs is – is pro- is prompting more European uh, vacationing and, and travel from people in the U.S. I mean, I, I think it's definitely a draw, um, but not something that I've acted on specifically. Um, I mean, you went to the Azores. We did go to the Azores, but I think that's that happens to be a more affordable place generally. Okay, outside of um, like I think I believe Portugal is as well, um, but the Azores, like we were expecting it to be, kind of along the same lines as I don't know, anywhere in Spain or Paris. Um, uh, but, but yeah, we're, we were surprised at how affordable it was. So yeah, going to Italy, that, that felt like surprisingly affordable just to have that, that one-to-one, um, exchange. Yeah. I mean, I think, you I mean, if you look at the reporting on this, a lot of people are choosing to go to Europe now. Um, because it's more affordable than lots of other vacations. And it kind of makes it as affordable as going somewhere in the US, especially when you look at sort of what the some of the airline fares are around certain times of year. Sometimes they're going to be really expensive, but at other times they're going to be on parity to other you know places you might fly. Maybe you go to the West Coast, maybe I would fly to Seattle from here or something, right? Well, yeah. if it's $600 for me to fly to Seattle and $650 for me to fly to Dublin. Maybe I go to Dublin, right? It's sure. and I can buy a lot of Irish whiskey. So, I think you're you're definitely seeing this and, you know, people are starting to talk about well, how long is this going to last for? And if this if this does last for, you know, longer than a few months, if this is if this is going to be the state of play for the next year or so, like is it within you know, Americans best interest like plan their weddings in Europe as opposed oh. to the wedding venues here in the US or other life events right because the venues now are affordable the you know the alcohol is affordable travel is affordable the hotels are more affordable so that's really where like 
you know, if you, the economists that I've like listened to and read have said like, that's where an American is going to notice the most amount of benefit to themselves is actually traveling to and spending money in Europe. Mm. Gotcha. It's, you're, you're not going to feel it as much here because of all of the other externalities that go into the pricing of the wine when it hits the shelf. But where this could benefit Europe and the wine regions is that if more Americans are coming and they're becoming and they're and the wineries are, you know, open to Americans and hosting them, et cetera, that, you know, Americans could discover a new region, fall in love with something, you know, become a, a large devotee to yeah. one of those styles of wine. I think that's that's something that is only beneficial to Europe. And I do think we will see, at least for the foreseeable future, that the majority of tourists in the European countries will be American because the dollar just goes so much further. I mean, there's all these stories you used to hear about people who lived in London and Paris who like in the, I think it was like early 2000s, late 90s when like the Euro was just so strong. I think it was like two to one. Do you guys remember that when it was like two to one? That yeah. they would, that, that Europeans would come to New York for the weekend just to shop. Wow. Because you could buy you know, luxury goods at a much cheaper, you almost were getting 50% off when you think about how far your, your Euro went. And so I think you're going to see a very similar thing on the American side of Americans that are more willing to go to, let's say Paris for a four to five nights or, you know, take a quick little wine trip or whatever, and feel like it's not as great of an expense is it as it had been in the past. Because I mean, right now, as we are recording this, it is 1.02 United States dollar to one Europe. That is crazy. Yeah. And earlier, like what was it only earlier this month, the dollar was was actually stronger. It was it was 97 cents to a euro. Yeah. So it's 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 just gonna continue. And as long as there's a war in Ukraine, unfortunately, it's gonna stay like this. Yeah, and I think you're right. It it makes me <laughs> mildly disappointed that I probably won't reap the benefits to the same extent. But you know, that who knows? Maybe we'll just uh, pack the family up and uh, decamp to Europe for a little while. Who knows? Yeah, just go. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, you know, fifth we'll birthday. The, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, it's been an interesting conversation. Again, not, none of us are economists. Just trying to understand the economics. So. Don't take our words for it, but it is really interesting. Yes, let us know what you think. Yeah, tell us, podcast at vinepair.com. Tell us we're wrong. Or right. That's also nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'll talk to you both on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Shrino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. 
Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.